Hello folks, welcome back, and if you're a new listener, welcome to the show. You're listening to the High Performance Human Podcast, and I'm your host, Simon Ward. And on that subject of high performance, I just wanted to let you know that you are a high performance human. And you might not believe me, but listen on for a second, because the concept of high performance isn't just about athletics. It's described as a measurable state where an individual, and that's you, consistently performs at a higher level of operational success compared with most of their peers within the same environment at a particular time. This is across all areas of your life. And it's not absolute, it's relative. So if you're an endurance athlete and you train or compete regularly, don't just compare yourself against other athletes. Instead, think about other folks of your age and compared to them, you are operating at a very high level. Now, despite this, I appreciate that you might still want to improve. And if so, then we'd love to help you. It could be your sleep, nutrition, physical activity, personal relationships, work habits, and so much more. I've currently got availability to take on one or two new clients. And my wife, Beth, who is a certified life coach, also has availability. So depending on what you're looking to focus on, then we have you covered. And you can find contact details in the show notes below. All right, today's guest is a Canadian, which makes my wife very happy. Rick Peters is an elite swimmer, he's an airline pilot, and he's a high-performance human. He was introduced to me by my longtime client, Toby Baxendale, when he and Rick met at a Barbados Open Water Swim Festival last November. Rick finished seventh overall in the 5K swim, which was a non-wetsuit, and he had a very impressive time of one hour, 13 minutes, which is an average pace of 1.28 per 100 meters. That's pretty rapid. Made even more impressive by the fact that Rick is 60 years old. He still regularly captains long haul flights for Air Canada. And in the conversation, we talk about his daily fitness routine, his love for swimming, and how he stays fit and healthy for sport and for work. Then we add in the complications of air travel, the impact of time zone changes and some of the strategies Rick uses to mitigate these. Finally, we get into a deep dive about the microbiome and how keeping your gut healthy has a major impact on brain health, sleep and general fitness. So I hope you enjoy the show as we chat with another high performance human. So let's hear from Rick Peters. Oh, Rick Peters, welcome to the show and thank you for joining me. Most uh, glad to be here. So you were introduced to me via a mutual friend, Mr. Toby Baxendale, a previous guest on the show and a longtime uh, client of mine. Um, you and Toby were participating in a swim event in Barbados, which is a lovely place to swim, by the way, if, if sure any is. of our listeners uh, haven't been yet. Um, really nice place to go in, in October, November. Um, and Toby, Toby said he was embarrassed to tell me that you waved to him as you passed him doing the longer swim as he was doing the shorter swim and you stopped and gave him a few tips, but um, yeah, so that's how we, that's how we came to be uh, doing this podcast, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Toby's a fantastic guy. That was the, uh, it's called the Barbados open water festival as an annual event every uh, November. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so he was doing the 3.3 kilometer race and I was doing the five and we had met earlier because he uh, like me is very, very interested in, you know, health and, sports mm -hmm. health and then longevity health right mm, yeah so uh, and then he said that uh, there is this amazing guy simon ward <laughs> oh he's he's, he's and, correct there yeah <laughs> yes 
and he has his podcast and it'd be great if I, uh, you know, just chatted with him about a few of the things that I do. Yeah. Well, I, um, I think even before Toby had done that little introductory email, he told me about, he said, I met this guy and he's a great swimmer and he's, he's, he's 60, you know, side, but he doesn't look it. And he doesn't, certainly doesn't swim like it. And, uh, but when he told me about his life, you know, cause he's an airline pilot, which we'll get onto in a minute. And he has all of these longevity tricks and biohacks, which we don't really like to use, but let, let's use it anyway. Cause it's a popular word. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I said to him then, wow, we'd be great guests for the podcast. And uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a swimmer. Um, I'm a triathlete, but swimming's my, um, strong point in that. And, uh, um, I was very envious of that event that you and Toby were doing or that festival that you were doing. And um, so that's what first in, um, piqued my interest was the swimming. Um, have you been a swimmer all your life? Yes, all my life, uh, competing now basically over 50 years and and just in swimming. So in Toby's defense, he's a triathlon. He, you know, you guys are doing three sports. I'm only concentrating on one. So um, I do, you know, some running and um cycling if i can't swim but you know swimming is the absolute main sport you're based in canada that's right most yeah. of the time aren't you but you are from barbados locally known as a Bayesian. that's and right so, so i um, guess was your was your formative swimming done in the ocean or did you join a club and swim in a pool well as a kid, of course, we went to the ocean a lot and did a lot of swimming, but it was not competitive. So all the competitive swimming was done in pools. Mm -hmm. And then um, when I uh, went to university, I competed in a varsity team and that was all pools. And uh, basically, it's my uh, buddies in Barbados, right? And uh, yeah. I'll, I'll uh, give them a plug that they they decided, well... The pool time is getting hard to get with all the young kids. So let's go to the ocean. It's much more fun. And, uh, you know, after around, you know, 2005, we sort of transitioned to the ocean. And in 2013, uh, these competitions started. And I've been basically, you know, switching over to an ocean swimmer because I have that sort of advantage of growing up in the sea and knowing mm -hmm. the waves and the winds and the currents. Um, and stuff like that. So, um, no, I was not always, it was not competing in the ocean basically before 2013. Okay. So, um, if you don't mind me asking, Rick, how old are you now? 60. So you're 60 now. You definitely, for those, the listeners can't see you on the screen, but if they could, they definitely would be wanting to see your birth certificate. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um, so 2005, you'd have been just coming up to your or you just had your 40th birthday then wouldn't you when you started doing a bit more swimming in the ocean yeah right yeah so well, uh, um yeah i would be close to 40 yeah 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 i think you're probably the same age as me i'm i'm 60 in a couple of weeks time so uh um so i was born in 63 so i'll be i'll be oh. 61 this year okay yeah i was early 64 so when you were swimming uh when you were younger and you were in the pool did you have a particular stroke or distance that was your favorite? Yes. Well, that's interesting because uh, back then I was a pure sprinter, you know, okay. the short distance, uh, the 50 meters, the 100 meters, and like anything over 200 was was like uh, very difficult for me. Um, and it's interesting now that I'm competing in these, you know, five kilometer races, completely different. 
And uh, I'd have to say that one is because those are the races in the ocean, one thing. Mm -hmm. But the other is, you know, my body type is when you're a teenager and you're in twenties and you're in the, you're going to the gym and you have a lot of muscle. Mm. Um, I, I'm not as big as before. And that's becoming an advantage in the water. Yeah. Uh, I'm not pulling a lot of muscle or weight through the water. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and also the, the mind, uh, power and, uh, the sort of thinking that you need to have for these distance mm -hmm. is very different than the all out explosive sprint. So it mm -hmm. was a complete change there as well from a sprinter to a long distance swimmer. Okay. So you, you're quite muscular. Do you, are you quite tall with long limbs then? Because most of the sprinters I know have got, they've got big feet for kicking. They've got broad shoulders and they've got decent sized hands and, uh, you know, just that powerful V shape. So was, was that you? Uh, well, no, I'm only 5'11", so that's that's uh, that's not tall for the swimming world, you know, no. Michael Phelps or those guys. Mm -hmm. But the body type is pretty close to Michael Phelps, where I have, a, you know, more upper body development and mm. uh, very little uh, um, excess weight and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I train uh, in, in Leeds with a, a group of master swimmers, and there is a, a subset of that group that are sprinters. And, I mean, these guys win, you know – most of them have got GB Masters titles. Some of them have got GB, uh, Masters World Records as well um, in the sprint distance. And certainly they do these uh, re they, they do these relay teams where it's like over 200 years old. So as long, you need three members that are 50 and one that's 51 and gives you a total of 201 years. And so they're in the over 200 category. And um, they've got Masters World Records there. Um, but whenever we go to the pool, everybody laughs at them a bit because they always seem to be stood on the poolside and then they'll do one fast 25-meter sprint off the blocks and then a little bit of easy swimming. And, you know, if their session totals more than 1,500 meters, it's an endurance set for them, but they'll never swim any more than 200 meters. Um, right. So I, I, I can see that the, the change in physical conditioning and mindset from doing that sort of training to doing the, the ocean type of stuff must have been quite a, quite a step for you. Uh, well, it was at first, yes. Um, but again, being motivated by uh, longevity sort of mm. desires and, and, and overall health, you know, taking your heart up to the absolute red line for the sprint mm -hmm. is not always as good as, as maintaining, um, you know, a heartbeat in the 60 to 80 percent range. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit healthier on the heart anyway to mm. do the distance stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, now then, how do you do your training? Is it, I guess in Canada, uh, most, well, much of the year round, it'll be pool based, right? Do you, do you get the opportunity to swim in a 50 meter pool at all? Uh, not in my area. So it's just a 25 meter pool. So that's a lot of flip turns. Mm -hmm. and, uh, because I am in Canada. Yeah, it's a lot of pool swimming. The lakes here are quite cold uh, for me, again, from the Caribbean. Mm. Um but I, as a as a pilot, I have the opportunity to go to Barbados more often, and whenever I can, I do. Mm -hmm. So um, I get I get a decent amount of swimming in there. Okay. So what what does your week if we go through the year? What does your weekly training schedule look like, and how many meters will you cover on average each week? Would you say? Um, well, I try to uh, do exercise every day. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like yep. uh, this book I read once called Younger Next Year. Mm -hmm familiar with that one i am uh, not but so maybe we'll be putting that in our book recommendations 
Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, these two guys, Chris Crowley, uh, which is sort of a motivated, motivational speaker, and um, another uh, cardiologist, MD, and they're just talking about, you know, as you get older, the importance of doing aerobic exercise, mm-hmm. basically, um, you know, six to seven days a week, and then a couple days of of weights, right, uh, to maintain some muscle that you're mm-hmm. you're losing. Mm-hmm. So the exercise is every day, but the exercise is not always swimming because if I'm having an intense workout, as you get older, I find the recovery time is, uh, is more. Yeah, for and sure. There's, um, you know, this principle of hormesis, right? You're familiar with that? Uh, yeah. Yep. Where, right. So um, if I do too much, then I could create injuries or wear and tear. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just finding that sweet spot. Yeah. So basically, swimming wise, it uh, works out to probably three or four times of swimming, and then the rest would be yoga or jogging or running or um, or biking um, or even walking to just to be active, but mm-hmm. to to use that as a rest time for the shoulders. Yep. How long would those sessions be then? The three to four pool sessions. Um, okay. Well, they will be. Anywhere from like 45 minutes to an hour and uh, hour and a half. Mm. And then uh, again, working with the, you know, preserving your body for the long-term ability to compete is a lot of quality and not too much quantity. Like okay. I just don't get in the pool and swim nonstop. Mm-hmm. Um, I will do drills. I would do interval training. Yep. And um like I see a lot of triathletes just get in and go and go and go. And uh, I think interval training is better because you are practicing swimming at a race speed rather mm-hmm. than swimming. Yeah. And do you have the opportunity to swim with a group at all or swim with some friends or do you do most of your swimming on your own? Well, since COVID, unfortunately, in Canada, um, it, uh, it's been mostly alone because the uh, restrictions we had on the pools. And, but before that, there was, there was a local master's team, and that was fantastic, very social, mm-hmm. all different levels, and I swam with them. And then we got some coaching, which is also very important, mm-hmm. right? Because the, the sport of swimming, the stroke technique is very important, and I'm yeah. still learning after all these years. So... So anybody who I do meet who is an expert swimmer, I ask them for tips or whatever. And then anything I learn, I pass on, right? People like Toby um, to improve their efficiency. Mm. Um, so, yeah, now uh, after COVID, it's, it's, it's quite disturbing to me that certain uh, sports can't get back together. There's not enough people. I don't, mm. I don't really understand it, but uh, uh, our, our local swim team, uh, wasn't getting any subsidies from the town, mm. so they couldn't they couldn't have enough people to pay the fees. Yeah. So it's uh, it's no longer, and uh, my only chance would be to join the kids team. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, and and then my training is pretty specific. So so yeah. unfortunately, right now it's in Canada. It's mostly by myself. But as soon as I get to Barbados, especially because it's the ocean too, you don't want to be swimming alone in the ocean. Mm. Always swimming there with buddies. 
Yeah, I mean, you're right. It was it was terribly disruptive, COVID, not just during that period, but to a lot of organised things afterwards. So we Leeds, compared to a lot of the UK, has a really, really strong network of, of um, council-run pools, including a 50-metre pool and a really good master's programme. And I, I feel sorry sometimes for the folks that I coach when I say to them, you know, just get into a get into a group or a squad session and they've got they've got one one class that they can attend once a week and it's like 9 p.m. on a Thursday night, which isn't which isn't a great time for doing any training for most people. Um and it's crowded and they've got three lanes and very difficult to get anything meaningful done. Um, so we were quite lucky. Um those masters programs have have fallen apart a little bit. The coaches found other employment so you know they didn't want to then go back to doing the one or two master sessions a week. But I've been very lucky that when I started back at the pool, um, I used to religiously go at 7 a.m. every, you know, three times a week. Just wake up on auto, you know, on autopilot, coffee in the car, drive to the pool, get in the pool at <laughs> seven o'clock. Um, Good for you. <laughs> and, and then and then with COVID, you know, all that fell apart. And so now I found I do I do my stretching and my strength training in the morning. But I found it um I found an opportunity to swim at 9.30 on a Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And as I was finding my own lanes, there was other people that I noticed were sort of doing similar lap sessions like we talked about, broken down. And I asked them if they'd want to join me. But primarily that was because if three or four of us could get in one lane, it meant that we could do a very similar thing and other members of the public would go and find another lane to swim in. And so we'd get this uninterrupted opportunity. And over the last two years, it's grown into um. A and that's because I, you said I think you said nine thirty. That's AM or PM? AM. Yeah. AM. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, I'm you know I'm I'm lucky. I because I work for myself, I can create my own schedule, so I get I get opportunity. I appreciate that for a lot of people, that's not not a good time to swim. Um, but still, over the years, we've accumulated a group of people who've joined our WhatsApp group that, that probably numbers forty or fifty now, and on any session. We probably have 12 or 15 people now. So what we do is organize Elvis into three lanes and we have three different speeds and I set the session for everybody and then I do it. Um, and it's a, a proper little community now. So it's it's not anything that the council's organized, but you know, over time we've formed this little nucleus and bond that enables us all to get a decent workout three times a week. And it's, yeah, it's really nice. I mean, you, you talk about longevity. I think one of the things that I've noticed about all of these communities that have longevity, you know, spikes is that community is a huge thing. And that social part of training um, is, is big as well, isn't it? Yeah. Well, if you read uh, the research from the blue zones, right. Dan yeah, yeah. National Geographic, and they yeah. have the nine different factors. And, mm. and one of them is uh, your social circle mm -hmm. and not only the social part, but how do they influence you? Yeah. And uh, it's very important. Yes. Yeah, I'm busy watching that Netflix um, documentary that Dan Butner That's did. Right. I think yes, he, was... he has a, a new yeah. documentary on. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's very interesting. But I, the other thing that I feel like locally to us, one, one council has had to close a lot of the pools, and I feel there's a lot of older folks who perhaps swimming's the only activity they can do because they've got bad knees or a bad back. And you can see the little community they have when, when they're waiting for the pool to open, and that's suddenly been wiped out because the council can no longer afford to run the pools. And I wonder what, what happens to all those folks now. They don't get that social interaction every day. Um, and I think perhaps we over when we're busy doing our training, we overlook the fact that it's actually, there's more to it for a lot of people than just keeping fit. 
That's right. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the hydrotherapy aspect and, and recovery mm. um, has a matter of interest. Uh, and one of the uh, morning races, we had to pause because they bring the racehorses in Barbados. Yeah. To I've the seen ocean. those. Yep. I've seen those. Yeah. Right. And they're out there swimming. So the organizer was saying, you know, watch out for the horses in your race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's amazing to watch, isn't it? Because all you can see is this chap apparently floating along in the water. And then eventually when he gets close to the shore, he emerges on the on the back of this big racehorse. That's right. And the horses are like they're they're great swimmers. They have good technique. And yeah, the, yeah. the guy was holding on behind. The horse is really moving. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, you talk about Barbados, but one thing I was um amazed out there in the evenings um you know bef- in the hour before sunset is the is the little communities of people that go to the beach that pay the paddle ball and they just go and hang out in the water and chat and um you know maybe sometimes they take a bottle of beer down and it, it, there's a there is a very strong social network around the beach there yes it is uh, and then you have the the group that go there for the green flash right the last ray of sun oh really where there's a there's a green speck right at the horizon. Okay. Yeah. Not, you, you have I've, to, not, uh, I've not been observant enough to see that one yet. I'll make no, sure that it, it, it's very quick, and you have to know <laughs> kind of what to look for. And there's a you know a lot of uh, disbelievers, mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> um, it does exist. The green flash. Okay. So um, great that you're doing the swimming. Um, you lift weights. You lift heavy weights, or do you just you, you lift light weights? Um, when you go uh, to the right. Gym. So uh, what I was going to say is in keeping with that, uh, you know, suggestions of the younger next year book, I try to do one or two um, weight sessions a week, um, but I have to be careful. So I'm not I'm not really building too big muscles, mm-hmm. you know, um, like, for example, you know, when you're trying supplements, um, my son was doing some bodybuilding and and he was taking some creatine. Mm. So, I said, okay, well, let me try it, right? It's going to be great. So I did the creatine. I could see the muscles getting bigger, but I was slowing down in the pool. Mm-hmm. It was quite interesting. So I, I, I came off of the creatine. Um, so basically the answer is a, I do weights, but not really, really uh, intense heavy weights uh, to build mm-hmm. too much muscle, just to maintain the muscle they have. Okay. And what one of the things that I've noticed about the older swimmers that I've coached is that sometimes their limitations aren't necessarily with their aerobic fitness. Um, it's, it's maybe a technical deficiency, but that technical deficiency is caused by a growing tightness around the upper back or the shoulders or the hips, which means that their streamlining and hydrodynamic efficiency isn't what it could be. And actually, rather than spending hours trying to go harder and faster in the pool, if they did a little bit of stretching each day, that would probably um, answer some of their their questions do you spend much time um stretching and mobilizing those joints well i get a lot of that from the yoga that i do ah, right? okay okay so so there's a lot of stretching there and um you know over the years every now and again the shoulders will give a little trouble if i if i get very mm-hmm. intense in the training so we bought this device that gives out uh, red and infrared light it's called mm-hmm. a bioflex mm-hmm. and it's made in canada here and uh you know, that infrared light helps to give the mitochondria energy and repair and, you know, just sort of loosen up things and keep them keep them healthier, the, the ligaments and the tendons and stuff like that. Mm. But as for actual stretching, 
I don't do a lot because I'm just working on the shoulders, right? Mm -hmm. So I'll just warm them up mm -hmm. and make sure that I start the swimming session slowly. I build up. Don't just jump in and, and do something too fast, too hard. So, mm -hmm. And how often do you go to yoga each week? Uh, well, I will do my own yoga. Okay. Right? Uh, I, uh, just to save time. And, uh, you know, as an airline pal, that's part of the problem of joining a group, like you're saying. I can't say, well, every Tuesday at 7 p.m. I'll be available. Mm. My, my schedule is uh, completely variable every month. Mm. And, um, you know, I don't even know what the schedule is for February yet. I have to put in requests and stuff. So uh, a lot of the stuff I have to work around the day. So I don't have a specific yoga group or time. I just have done a lot of yoga over the years and know what are the best exercises for me. And is, is that a daily activity then for you to do some yoga? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And um, is it purely just for the, the flexibility or um... – and the reason I ask this is because a couple of my friends are very, very passionate about their yoga and are always keen to tell me, look, it's the stretching is great, but it's not just about that. It's about the breathing. It's about the relaxation. It's about immersing yourself in the process. It's about the whole mindset and lifestyle. So is it, does it go beyond just flexibility for you? Well, absolutely, yes. Um, in my specific case, uh, I uh... – had a tear in the piriformis on the lower right uh, side mm -hmm. of my body mm -hmm. and it put the lower back out of alignment. Mm. And so for 20 years, I had chronic low back pain and it was getting worse and worse. And I was doing, you know, uh, physiotherapy. I took some of the uh, glucosamines and the, you know, the other sort of uh, supplements and they weren't working. So I had this, um, good fortune to meet a yogi who had just come from India and uh, he told me he could fix my back. So I said, well, this is worth trying. And he came to our house and uh, gave us private lessons. And his specialty was one of the aspects of yoga called pranayama. Mm -hmm. And, and then, so he had this routine where you do a little warm up, you do uh, 10 different yoga arches right? So no, no bending forward, just arching back to, to change the uh, mm -hmm. positioning of the discs. And then we would do his pranayama routine. So that was back in 2008. So he reversed 20 years of pain. And I've maintained those arches and breathing techniques till today. And I've never had lower back pain since. So there's a lot to yoga. It's an entire lifestyle, right? Especially mm. the whole eight limb, you know, there's meditation in there and ethics and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, well, that, Jack always said to me, you know, when, when I go on the yoga retreats to India, um, you see folks that it's not like in the Western world where everybody's engaged on their phone and they're always sort of apologizing. I'm sorry, I'm late. You know, I just had this to do. Everybody turns up 10 minutes before they've always got the shoes off, you know, ready to go in. There's no phones. People are really quiet and respectful. And there's a, there's a whole different mindset to doing that, that perhaps we in that we Western folks don't appreciate when we rush into a yoga session and leave before the Shavasana, because we think it's a waste of time, you know, and just lying there, you know, daydreaming. Yeah, yeah. The, the the Western interpretation of yoga is like a type of aerobics program. 
That's and right. Yeah. It isn't, it isn't really. Mm -hmm. um, and what fascinates me is having met this uh, pranayama expert mm -hmm. is since then, we know, we hear about Wim Hof and his breathing techniques and we mm -hmm. know of uh, Patrick McKillen. Yeah, yeah. Right? He was yep. one on your podcast. Yep. And, you know, the, the absolute importance of breathing through the nose. Mm -hmm. And uh, ever since I, I read his book, I've been like, whenever it's difficult to do in swimming, you, you can't breathe in through your nose, <laughs> but you can breathe out. Mm. So I make sure I breathe out through the nose, but attempting to do jogs or runs, breathing through the nose only. And it's really just the modern version of what these yogis have known for a couple thousand years. Mm. Well, I had uh, regularly have folks going to say, what, what do you think of this Wim Hof stuff? I've been doing the ice baths. I'm like, well, yeah, I like it. I like the fact that he's popularized some of these things. They're not new. Um, he, you know, I think that there are some folks that take what Wim Hof says, which probably a lot of it has value. Um, but then they take it to extremes and it can go wrong. And because that's what humans do, don't they? They're like, well, he says I should do 10 minutes in an ice bath. So I'll just get an ice bath. And instead of taking my time adapting to it, I'm just going to dive straight in. And then the next minute they're being taken off to hospital with hypothermia because it's just too much for them. That's right. Yeah. The, the, yeah. These things, are, um, well, as I saw in the pranayama, the, the recovery took uh, like three months Mm. right to to see a difference and then by six months the entire back pain was gone mm. so the 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 yoga part the asana the the positions was easy but this guy teaching the breath i had my wife participate as well and it was fascinating you know there were certain breathing exercises i could do that she was not to do because of different body type different physiology mm -hmm. and uh and vice versa and he the most of the time was learning these breathing techniques correctly. It was very, mm. very technical. Mm. And he said, we cannot make mistakes here because it could go wrong. Right. So well, yes. It's, uh, yeah, you're it's absolutely right. Complex. And I, um, after, after speaking with Patrick McEwen and um, also James Nestor's book, breathe, uh, you know, reading that yes, and talk, yeah. talking Great to, book. talking to athletes about breathing, the, the common flippant response I get from people is, well, I'm 45 now and I've been breathing all that time. So I must be pretty good at it. And actually, if you listen and talk to uh, the two gentlemen I've just referenced, they'll tell you that most people actually aren't that efficient and good at breathing. Um, and there's a lot they could do better to not just improve their breathing, but improve their whole health and, and their athletic performance. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, let's talk about some of the other areas of your healthy living and longevity goal then. Um, we talked about um, yoga. I guess that really helps you with stress management. And we're going to come and talk to you about your professional career in a minute of, of flying. But um, besides the yoga and the breathing, do you do you use any other strategies to help manage stress in your life? Well, I believe in meditation. Um, we got the chance to attend some of Deepak Chopra's uh, conferences oh, wow. when he came to Canada. Yeah. So uh, I'm convinced that it's a benefit. Yeah, uh, a lot of people do it. It's uh, it's difficult to fit in the time, but I, I certainly try to. And I find uh, that for me, at the end of the day, it's a nice wind down mm. to to help with sleep, because I believe that sleep is very important for a lot of things. Um, so meditation is one. And uh, 
other than I don't have too many other tricks or supplements because in my job, you must be very careful. You cannot take any sedatives or sleeping mm. pills or any, you know, mm. downers. Uh, you don't want to be in a behind the wheel of a 200,000 kilogram airplane <laughs> and be half asleep. <laughs> yeah. Well, so on that, on the point about sleep there, because I, I totally agree with that. I mean, for me, sleep is that, you know, if you have a pyramid of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if, if you adapted that to physical needs, then sleep would be right at the very bottom as the foundation for everything that's good. Um, and I've yet to come across anything that's made worse by sleeping more. Um, but of course, again, people say, well, I sleep okay, but there's sleeping okay and there's getting optimal sleep, isn't there? And, and there is quite a difference between that. Um, and when you dig into it with most folks, I'll say, oh, yeah, I wake up in the middle of the night and then I can't back, get back to sleep or, you know, it, it takes me ages to get sleep or I, I only need four or five hours a night. What um, do, do you have any other strategies uh, aside from meditation and breathing that you use to make sure you get the optimal sleep? Um, well, uh, there's the obvious, the, the, the common sleep hygiene, right? Where, mm -hmm. you know, you want to uh, not be doing this podcast with the blue light right before and, uh, or some stimulating conversation or have a coffee. Um, you want to have your room, you know, darker, quieter um, and, and, and comfortable, all those things. Um, one interesting thing, again, from Pranayama is uh, the yogis, knew that you have a, a, a nasal cycle, these, these uh, turbinates mm -hmm. that are in your nostrils that, that go left and right. They, and, and if you're healthy, every around two hours, they change sides. Mm -hmm. And modern science, they call it the uh, nasal cycle. And uh, the little bit of research being done, for example, they're, they're showing that when you breathe through the left nostril, more oxygen goes to the right hemisphere. Okay. And more oxygen goes to the vagus nerve and the parasympathetic system, okay. and then the opposite for the right side. So one of the techniques of sort of calming down would be to, for a few minutes, breathe only through your left nostril. Just oh, right. Very calmly, right? Yeah. And then the opposite in the morning, if you want a little extra boost, uh, breathe through the right nostril only. I've not heard that before. So that's, that's really interesting. Um, and I, I, you know, as soon as you said vagus nerve and parasympathetic, I think, you know, that's the rest and digest side, you know, I wonder if there's a, a something to do with the uh, circadian rhythms as well. So it sounds like there is in terms of evening habits and, and morning habits is, uh, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, left side and right side nose breathing. Right. So, so every, uh, the modern science has done it and, you know, bio-individuality, that's a, that's a real interesting thing, how different we can be. But the range goes from like 40 minutes up to uh, three hours for these cycles. And what's interesting is that people that have uh, unhealthy bodies or even, even the mind, sometimes they don't have this nasal cycle. It's stuck on one side. Mm -hmm. And mm. Uh, the only thing that science can't explain is why is the body doing this mm -hmm. right so there's the physical aspect maybe it's uh it's helping to moisten one side because when when the turbinate um deflates it's it shoots out mu mucus right to okay. to uh, to keep the nose um hydrated 
and then the other side gets more airflow, so it would dry out a bit. But the yogis are are they're viewing that as a, as a as a balance, right? right? And they and they have tricks. Uh, for example, uh, if they these guys can listen and see how you're breathing mm. and do an analysis, and they have this little um, like a crutch they put under your arm to to activate the axillary nerve, right? And after four minutes of pressing on this nerve, the the nose cycle will change. Wow. And after 17 minutes, it will stay on that side for whatever your personal timing is. Wild stuff. Yeah, I, breathing, I... breathing is very, very uh, involved and directly uh, related to our health. My physio, Louisa, who I um, cheekily call the white witch because she does all this stuff with fascia and um, sort of energy points, you know, when I go to see her, I'll stand in front of her with my back to her and she'll put her hand gently on the top of my head and she can sense from that where the tension is in my body. And she can do a treatment um, in one part of my back, for instance, that will be affecting my, you know, my shoulder. Or she can she can do this manipulation in my mouth with the, the jaw, the joint of the jaw there that's affecting my stomach. You know, so there's there's all of these points where I tell my friends about it. They're like, "That's just weird, Wardy. It doesn't, you know. Why do you believe that that stuff works?" But honestly, it does work. I think sometimes you've got you've got to just think outside the box a little and just believe that this there is some credibility to this, even though traditional medicine will say, "Well, there's no research to prove it, and it's all woo woo." Yeah, the uh, the interconnectedness of things mm. is fairly amazing. Well, you and I. Uh, we did have a pre-conversation um, before we set up this podcast. And one of the things we talked about was the microbiome and how that interacts with everything. And it's, you know, there's a, there's a huge amount of research being done around the world now into um, the microbiome and gut bacteria and gut health. Um, I'm interested firstly on your surface sort of the surface part of that is what you, your nutrition. Um, you look, you look amazingly healthy, as I said, you know, you look vibrant and you've got that suntan and you definitely don't look your age. Um, so clearly you, there's something you're doing with your nutrition, but then I'm, I'm also interested in some of the, the nuances that you've um, perhaps are, are, are doing that are helping with gut health as well. Yeah, well, the, the, the microbiome to me is key to, to your health and, and your longevity. Um, so in terms of nutrition, that's probably the easiest way to modify it. And, uh, you know, diet is a, is a very controversial and uh, sometimes divisive topic. So yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I don't promote any one particular diet that has a name or anything. Uh, in Canada, they just redid our food guide in 2019. Mm -hmm. And uh, the last one was 2007. So they had, you know, 140 scientists in Ottawa, and they studied uh, the literature. And basically, their, their new image is quite good, I think. It's just a picture of a plate. And it says that 50%, half the plate, will be fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. And then a quarter will be whole grain. And then a quarter will be protein, some source of protein. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but they, that's what to eat. In, in sort of the proportions and uh, the other is how to eat where they are promoting, you know, eating at home, eating with friends again, mm -hmm. 
um, chewing your food, taking your time, all yeah. these things which are promoting the parasympathetic system and the microbiome to digest your food better. So when it comes to the microbiome, you have the, the concept of the fibers and uh, uh, it's called uh, prebiotics, right? What, what feeds yep. these friends mm -hmm. and then the friends were, are probiotics, right? So they are, they are conferring a health benefit on us, the host. We, we, we provide a home for them and they help themselves and they help us. Yep. Um, so the last part is the postbiotics. And uh, that's a bit more tricky because it, it can mean their metabolites, like mm. the short chain fatty acids, or it could mean like post life. Because in the beginning, people said, oh, it's, it's crazy to take probiotics. So they'll, they'll be killed in the, the stomach acid, which uh, for the most part, if they're unprotected, they will be. But they're finding benefit to dead or killed uh, probiotics mm -hmm. and, and components. So that's uh, also referred to as postbiotics. Mm. Do, do you try to get any fermented foods or any particular foodstuffs that are going to help promote that healthy bacteria in your stomach then? Yes, uh, uh, that's, a, that's a good point. That's, that's about the only thing the Canada Food Guide is missing is uh, that fermented foods should be added. I'm not sure what percentage, but, you know, they're, uh, have, they've been consumed for, for hundreds of years. Mm. And in the probiotic world, you know, the, the father of probiotics, this uh, researcher, Eli Mechnikov, you know, back in the early 1900s, when he was doing his research on longevity, he came across these Bulgarians and he came up with the idea that their, their good health, you know, they're, they're 90 or 100 years old and they're, they're up there still herding sheep or running around all day and they mm. would drink this kefir oh, yeah. with, the, with the lactobacillus. Yeah. Right? So they called it the lactobacillus bulgar bulgaricus. Um, so, yeah, fermented foods for sure. I think you talked about the blue zones earlier and um, they're, when they look, in, you know, in the in the Netflix program, they're looking at the um, the different cultures and communities. And there's quite a bit of time spent in the kitchen watching the mostly the ladies preparing extensively preparing, taking the time about preparing these foods from the locally sourced natural ingredients and there's quite a lot of the stuff that's fermented there isn't there yes um that they're that they're eating so i think that's one of the 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 modern problems we have is that the food and our lifestyle is too clean mm -hmm. so so we have you know sterilization pasteurization we have preservatives um you know, everything is so clean that we're not getting new uh, probiotics put in mm. and it's not helping us, right? Well, well one, of, one of the things that you, because um, you sent me quite a bit of information on various things, didn't you? One of them was on vitamin K2. And when I was reading through the, the, um, the document you sent, there was something about the, there was a, there's a Japanese food stuff. Um, which is around the sort of beans that have got a slimy covering and um, or a slimy coating on them that don't look particularly appetizing, but which um, um, provide the body with the, the, the vitamin K2. And it seemed to talk, I think that document also talks about the fermentation process. Um, have right. I, got that, have I got that all right? 
Yep, yep. That's the is the natto bean is the uh, the proper name for it. Which okay. the uh, the Japanese, all their more traditional ones, they have it basically every morning with rice, mm-hmm. and it's these fermented soybeans. And uh, vitamin K is uh, you know a well known vitamin, and it actually has two forms: K one and K two. And uh, they they knew this for many years, but they assumed because the chemical, you know, if you look at the chemical makeup, there's very little difference. So they assumed in the Western world that they did the same thing, which was affected blood clotting. Mm-hmm. And so over the years, they found these proteins that are, they're called um, vitamin K dependent proteins. And there's seven of them in your in your blood which helps blood clotting so when they started doing research in japan to see well why are these okinawans or why are these older people Mm. not having heart disease uh, and uh, and living so healthily they came up that they're eating this natto which is the is the number one source of vitamin k2 and it turns out that k1 which is properly known as philoquinone right? Phyllo for leaf is from leafy green vegetables. And K2, which is known as menaquinone, is from bacteria. And you have all these bacteria creating the K2. And it turns Mm. out there's 10 different forms of K2, right? And the only two that are known about are MK4 and MK7. Mm -hmm. You go from MK4 up to MK13. So there's so much unknown about K2, but what is known is that it's a calcium regulator. So this menaquinone, when you ingest calcium, the double benefit is that it will take calcium out of your arteries, and that's a big benefit, mm. put it into your bones. So once again, you have these vitamin K dependent proteins in your arteries and in your bones that are not activated by K1, only by K2. So, so, so is that is that the only mechanism then that you can get to divert that calcium from the arteries to the bones, and it's only available by consuming K two, or are there other mechanisms that uh, that operate within the human body? Well, um, I'm not sure if there's other mechanisms from the reading so far. It doesn't seem to be. Mm. Um, so this K two seems to be essential. Mm-hmm. And because it's of bacterial origin, then there seems to be a lot less in the modern diet of K2. So it needs to be supplemented. Now, the human body, you know, if it needs to, it can convert K1 to K2 mm. actually in the pancreas or the testes. But the conversion is only 5 to 20%. And that's sort of like a backup to keep mm. you alive. Um, and, and it only creates one of the K2s, the MK4. Okay. So so to get the other menaquinones, you must either eat the food, you know, the um the grass-fed butter or beef, mm. right? Because the 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 animal, the in in their rumen, they're converting the K1 to K2 for you, mm. or you have to get it in your food, like natto or organic cheeses, um and, and fermented stuff like that. I hope you're enjoying the show so far and learning a lot. 
If you aren't already a regular listener, I hope you feel you might come back. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button so you know whenever a new episode arrives. I publish these twice a week, ad-free, and with the mission of improving the health and performance of endurance athletes around the world. And to help me, I'd love it if you could share the episode with one person you think could benefit. If you have a couple more minutes, perhaps you could leave me a review on your chosen platform once you've finished listening to this episode. Okay, let's get back to the show. That's really interesting because typically in the Western world, and certainly when I've traveled around North America, getting grass-fed beef is actually quite hard. You know, it seems like in quite a lot of the restaurants, they're quite proud to say, yes, locally sourced corn-fed beef you know, in, in this beautiful steak and you ask if it's grass fed and the, the waiter looks at you and then has, I'll have to go and check with the chef. No, sorry, sir. Um, it's, it causes a lot of amusement among my friends when I ask whether the beef is grass fed or not. And, um, I have to then explain to them why it's important. Well, if it's not grass fed, then it's, it's, uh, unlikely that the animal has any K2. Mm. So in the big factory farms, they know this. So they invented a chemical K3 hmm. to, to give the animals and uh, it's toxic to humans. So humans are not allowed to, to, to take it and should not take it. Hmm. But in the, in the animal that's only eating the corn or the, the, the grain hmm. and not the grass uh, with the K1, then it will convert to some K1 and K2. Okay. Okay. So they, they know about it in the food, the animal feed industry, mm. right? The importance of it. But we don't seem to know about it too much in the human. Mm. Right? And that's because most of the research is out in Japan. I mean, in Japan, for postmenopausal women with osteoporosis, it's a medication now. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. So they, they will administer that to the women to, to ensure that the calcium in their blood circulating goes into their bone, right? Because it the K2 activates this thing called osteocalcin. So you're obviously very careful about what you eat, Rick, and um, very mindful and also very well educated on this. Um, I can see you, you've done a lot of reading. Um, do you, uh, I mean, are you 100% adherent to this healthy diet or do you let yourself stray a little bit? You know, do you, go, do you like to go out for a pizza and a burger like the rest of us occasionally or a couple of beers? No, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not 100%. Uh, if I have a choice, well, then I will go with an organic food. I, I firmly believe that um, if it's truly organic, then there's a benefit. You're, you're, you're not getting some residue of pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, or whatever. Mm. And you may be getting some probiotics. You may be getting more benefit than the normal food. But... Um, in my work, right, on the airplane, you know, some people bring their own food, but I, I will eat the food. It, it's not organic, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, again, with the hormesis principle, <laughs> yeah, a, a little bit of bad stuff uh, shouldn't hurt too much, but I try to, to mm-hmm. eat organically, mm-hmm. but not definitely not 100%. Well, let, let's... Um... Let's talk about your work now, because you you sound like you've got this really nicely sorted life. You've got your exercise, you've got your breathing, your meditation, pay attention to your sleep. You know, you've got your nutrition all sorted. 
but you're an airline pilot and that's not a normal nine to five work schedule Monday to Friday, is it? Um, and on top of those strange working hours that you have, you've also got regular time zone changes, which can play havoc with all sorts of things. You know, you sleep, um, you know, your digestion, your circadian rhythms and constantly flipping between one and the other. So I'm really interested to understand the type of flying you do. Because that's a stress as well. You know, you're up at altitude, you know, very high altitude. Um, you've also got, you know, one, two, three hundred people um, in the back behind you that you're basically looking after and making sure they get there safely. Um, and you've got to be you. You've de- very definitely got to be the high performance human, haven't you, in order to pilot one of those things and uh, you know avoid all the hazards. So. Talk about those. Talk about some of those things and how you navigate them, and then we'll get on to some of the other things you do to navigate those those sort of peculiarities of your working hours. Okay. Well, the the first half of my career was in the Caribbean, so that was uh, you know in the in the nature, in the good weather, in the vitamin D, in the sun, and the flights were mm. you know like ninety five percent daytime flights. A lot of the airports in the Caribbean aren't even open at night. They don't have any lights. So in the second half of my career now with the international airline, you know, the the, the planes are going much further mm. and much higher. So, yes, we have uh, the hormesis effect, right, of, of the sleep disruption or the uh, um, food, right, on board. But there's a certain limit. So I've been searching for things that would help, you know, negate the uh, the negative effects mm-hmm. of a long flight sitting up there at 41,000 feet and then getting to a place that has a time zone completely different. Mm. So um, there's a couple of things. My favorite uh, is uh, this molecular hydrogen gas. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's been a lot of research on it since 2007. Before 2007, they thought, well, it's just an inert gas and it doesn't do anything biologically in the body. And then these Japanese researchers showed that it it um, neutralizes reactive oxygen species or the, or these free radicals that mm. tend to go around your body and, and look to cause a problem or mutate your DNA or something. And on a normal day, we're getting that. We're getting cosmic radiation. We're, we're, we're even creating reactive oxygen species when we breathe. So, you know, they're there. But when you get too much of it, then you go into this state of oxidative stress. So this hydrogen <clears throat> um, sort of neutralizes those free radicals. So at first, you know, I went out and bought one of those uh, machines that uh, is electrolysis and it create, puts hydrogen gas into the, into the water that you can drink. But, you know, flying around the world, you, we have liquid restrictions, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in the UK. Yes, still. <laughs> yes, that's right. So, so you can't carry this water with you. And one of the beauties of hydrogen is uh, being the smallest atom in the universe and, and hydrogen gas is H2, so it's only two of them, it can go anywhere in your body, right? Right to the blood-brain barrier or wherever it wants to go. It's so small. So um, in that light, if you put it in a container, 
you know, before the flight. And then after your eight hour flight or up to 15 hour flight, if you're going to Asia, you go to drink that, there's not much hydrogen left because it, it escaped through the bottle, right? So um, in search of that, I found this company uh, in Canada called Drink HRW, and they have these tablets of magnesium and they're called rejuvenation. And these are very, very convenient where you, I can take the tablets and after my flight, drop it in some nice uh, clean water and it create the magnesium reacts with the water and creates this hydrogen gas. And then you just, you just drink it, right? And the research is just, um, it's like the microbiome. People are very, very interested in this molecule and they're finding out that it does, you know, the, the list of what it doesn't do is shorter, right? It, it does so many things. Is that, is that something you take specifically when you're flying or do you take that all the time? And, and if I was doing some, you know, if my wife's Californian, so we regularly go across to visit her family there. If I was on a long haul flight, is that a strategy that I could employ just for that flight or would it suit me better if it was something I was doing regularly? Well, remember in the beginning, um, I uh, was taking it only after the flight because of the, the known antioxidant Mm-hmm. and um, ability to reduce the jet lag, right? Your tiredness after the flight. But having done a lot more reading and this one company, Drink HRW, they're mm-hmm. doing clinical studies themselves, you know, to the, the highest level, right? Of the pharmaceutical world where it's randomized, placebo-controlled yeah. uh, clinical study. And they're showing, um, you know, reduction of pain, they're showing a benefit to the mitochondria, giving you energy. They're showing reductions in cholesterol, glucose. So the last year or so, I've been taking it more often just on a regular day as, as a supplement. Mm. And, you know, at first, I was very skeptical until I found out that there's microbes in our gut, if we're healthy, that create hydrogen. And there's a lot of them, like 240 species. Okay. So, so this is something that is naturally created in a healthy body. Mm. But remember what we were talking about earlier, where the microbiomes are being hit. They're being hit all the time, right? Pasteurization, uh, preservatives, antibiotics. Mm. And, and they're going into what's called dysbiosis, a lack of... Um, diversity and and less of the good guys right and it's the good guys that create hydrogen okay so that's that's one of the strategies you have when you're flying long horn and you are changing time zones are your are your time zone changes that, that are part of your shift so they are they big time zones or are you do i recall that you do most of you flying from canada down to barbados now so it's maybe a couple of hours if that Right. So uh, as you get more senior in these companies, then you have more choice. So um, at my age, I'm getting more senior so I can choose. And uh, I, I just love Europe and UK in, in, in the summer, especially, you know, <laughs> the, you guys are you guys are fun people and uh, there's lots to do over there. So I love going to Europe. So that's usually the, you know, five, six or seven hour time zone and <laughs> uh, um, time zone change. So there are, we do flights to the Middle, Middle East and the Far East, but I don't normally do those. 
because that's real disruption. Mm. Um, so I prefer the the European one. Mm-hmm. And uh, another another trick that uh, I came across is called earthing. Ah, yeah, I remember we talked about this before, and I did want to ask you about that. And I've, it's something I've heard of before, and and I've tried myself. So please, please explain how it works for you. Okay, well, uh, there was this gentleman in the states called Clint Ober, and he came up. He was a he was a electrical grounding guy uh, in his career, and he he uh, found out that the the Earth has a slight negative charge, an excess of electrons. And remember, like these free radicals and stuff, they're they're unstable. They're missing an electron. So if you can give them electrons, it's great. So the concept is that nowadays we're all wearing our beautiful running shoes uh, or, or rubberized shoes. So we're disconnected from the earth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you believe in the evolution, then we evolved with bare feet. And then maybe we had moccasins or leather or something that could transmit. And now mm-hmm. we're completely disconnected. Mm. So when you get to the new place, then, you know, it'd be great if you could go in bare feet and walk around. Well, you can't really do that. So I was going to tell you uh, that here's a great um, thing that uh, I found. So this is a, a company um in canada i think no actually it's from australia and these are these bonding strips okay yeah okay so that's that's a company called earth e-r-t-h-e so we'll put we'll put a link to that in the show notes so folks can see what that is yeah and it's uh this actual one is the uh, looks like a (laughs) prj2 and and you um you know attach the big end inside your shoe Then wrap it over and, and this on the bottom. Oh, so it go, does that go sort of like underneath the heel and then it, over the heel tab and then attached to the bottom of the heel? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, so so that you're even though you're wearing rubber shoes, you'll have this small contact with the earth. And uh, I've been using them for a couple of years. In the beginning, I put them right on the heel, right? Or one time put it by the toe. Mm. Well, it gets it gets too damaged. So now okay. I'm putting it more towards the arch. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, so if maybe if you're running on hard concrete or asphalt, it won't contact. But if you go towards grass or gravel, right, then um, you'll get the contact. And there's a lot of science showing, you know, how it uh, it will help your red blood cells unplump and uh, just help your your overall health. And then there are those I don't I don't have any science that say that it. It sort of synchronizes you with the time zone of the place you're in. Mm. And that's what I try to do so that when I'm going to sleep at night yep. in this place, I, I feel sleepy. Uh, so I don't have any science, but remember the power of placebo, right? You never can underestimate the power of what you believe in. Well, I, like you, I've, I've heard this whole principle of earthing. It's something I recommend to uh the folks I work with who are doing the time zone changes, um, you know, rather than going out for a two hour run in the afternoon when you get to your destination, because you've got the time instead, just go and have a gentle walk, find find if it's nice weather and you can do, you know, and it's, it's convenient, find a park and walk on the grass or go to the beach. Um, and quite a lot of the sleep experts, people like Matthew Walker, who wrote why we sleep 
um, recommend earthing as well as and that barefoot walking when you're sort of crossing time zones. So I think there's probably something in it. Um, maybe I'll have to dig around and uh, see if we can find some research to support this. But like you say, um, the thing about research is it's about consensus and um, and you know the main the main body of the evidence, isn't it? But even with any research, there's outliers. There's people for whom it, they have no response, and people who have an amazing response. So even without the research, you could be one of the folks that has an amazing response. So I am always a great fan of the N equals one approach. Like let's find out what works for me. So if if you're saying that works for you, then that's that's I can't argue with that. That's right. Bio individuality. It's pretty fascinating sometimes. You yeah. Know, a person takes something and then there's a wide variance of a reaction. Hmm. Um when you get to when you get to Europe and you've done your seven hour flight and you've gone across three or four hours of time zone change, what do you do about what do you do about adjusting your sleep? You know, or if you're coming back the next day, do you try and just sleep on your just sleep on the Canadian time zone? in the new destination and just wear an eye mask and a pair of um, a pair of earplugs? Well, actually just carrying on exactly with what you just said with the, the individual's um, response. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the pilot world, the girls and guys, wow, there, there's a hundred different theories mm-hmm. <laughs> of what you should do. Um, so I don't have a perfect uh, mm. sort of system um to give you that i know is you know true and tried and tested for everybody and and research mm. um you know because we have people that as soon as they arrive out they go right and they want to tire themselves out they go to sleep mm. so i've tried that but you feel kind of really weird in the afternoon so for me uh i like to you know if after the stressful flight as you're saying right you you've tried to perform at your best and you've Landed in that deep fog in Heathrow. <laughs> All the rain. <laughs> All the rain. Uh, and then you took that long bus ride downtown. <laughs> yeah. The traffic. Yeah. Um, so I go for a, an immediate rest of two, maybe three hours. And then I set an alarm to get up. Because if you stay in bed, then for sure, my nighttime sleep will be completely disrupted. So when you first wake up, you're not feeling too, too good, right? Because mm. um, you've disrupted your, your sleep. Mm. But, you know, then um, have some snacks, go outside, get, if, if we can, in nature, exactly what we're talking about, and um, go for a nice meal and, and try to get into the time zone. Mm. Uh, and, then, and then generally have a, a pretty good sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but... Then before the sleep, of course, is the sleep hygiene and and meditation and some gentle breathing and stuff. Mm. Because, you know, when we're going to bed in Europe, if it's 9 p.m. or something, well, (laughs) that's 3 p.m. in the afternoon. So you have to really calm down your body to tell it to go to sleep then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very very difficult. And I know particularly for those folks who are, you know, when we come back from California and it's an eight hour time zone change and you've effectively missed a night's sleep, um, the, the jet lag afterwards is horrible. You know, I always find it a lot easier to go the other way. Maybe that's because when I get off the plane there, it's midday, the sun's out, I can have a walk around, I can go and enjoy a nice meal. And so by the time I go to bed over there at eight o'clock, it's, it's effectively the middle of the night here in the UK. 
Right. Um, so it seems to be much worse flying from west to east. But still then, I know there'll be people saying, well, what do, you, what do you do about the jet lag? How do you avoid waking up in the middle of the night? And I've not come up, I've not come up with any strategies to avoid that yet, just ways to try and mitigate it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't have any, you know, a tried and true to no. No. technique for you, but that's what works for me. Okay. And you say when you, when you're on the plane, you don't take your own food um, to, to make sure you're continuing with your good eating habits. You just eat what's on the plane. And then when you get off the plane, you find the best available options to you locally. Well, I do take some of my own snacks and stuff that are non-perishable, mm-hmm. but I will, you know, if they're serving a, a hot meal, that's quite gratifying mm-hmm. um, so i will have that but yeah i don't eat all of the food um i'm not a big fan of the sugary desserts and stuff mm-hmm. uh, we're just reading about this uh mTOR have you heard of that mm-hmm. yeah the the this uh this sort of um regulator of the cells mm. and and uh how when you do like intermittent fasting or you lower your calories, you 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 adjust how this mTOR works and it mm-hmm. gets the cell to be healthier. Mm. So the same yes. things they don't eat, right? Like okay. desserts or whatever. Mm. And you know, on a flight where the where you're on the plane for seven or eight hours, um, you don't have you don't have much option for getting out and getting a breath of fresh air, do you? Um so you're 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 on it from the not not just the time you take off, but before that, you've got obviously you've got to do all your pre-flight checks and your post-flight checks. Um, are there opportunities for you to take little breaks just to recharge while you're flying? Are, are there any mandatory things that you have to do um, to stay focused? Okay, well, sitting for too long is not good. So, mm-hmm. you know, I try to get up every hour, hour and a half, right? Just stand up, you know, uh, walk around a little bit, but we can't go too far these days. Um, now, thanks to our, what's called flight and duty time limitations and our transport Canada rules, you know, we, if the flights, uh, longer than certain times, we can have three pilots, a relief pilot, or if it's going to Asia, it's four pilots. Wow. And we have bunks that we can take turns mm-hmm. going to, to actually lie down mm-hmm. if it's a much longer flight. Um, and then the uh, new rules are built around the circadian rhythms so if if it's like an all-night flight to europe then we'll even though it's a shorter flight we'll get a relief pallet so that you you won't be knackered when you arrive uh, in europe mm-hmm. so we do have the opportunity but it, it it's variable it depends on the length of the flight the time of the flight um but generally i try not to sit for too long mm-hmm yeah, and what about exercise when you when you're traveling? Do you just have to put that as a day when you can't do anything, um, or do you do you get the chance to do a little bit when you get to your venue in between the that landing and the return flight? Yeah, I try to always uh, get out and at least you know go for a, a walk or a jog around that uh, that city, mm. and then um, you know when I was preparing for this swim meet, I I was sourcing pools. Mm-hmm. You know, in Frankfurt or in Vienna or whatever, and yeah. and it's pretty amazing. Europe has a great system mm-hmm. of beautifully clean pools, and you know, you just and so I was going for swims too, but but really not a big workout. You 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 are still tired mm. from the time zone, and you mm-hmm. don't want to 
tire yourself out too much, right? Yeah, and it's I guess it's, I guess it's really accepting that like, this is just a maintenance thing. You know, it's about feel for the water and just getting getting a little bit of exercise at a level that's probably more appropriate for the body. And then that's and right. then once once you've sort of made peace with that, because I know perhaps my younger self would have gone, well, I, I could do a hard session here, whereas my older self says, well, I can get some gentle exercise in. It still has benefit, and it also needs to fit in with everything else I need to do. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's it's a, well for me. It's about the balance. You know, I I I work with guys. Boom, as they arrive, boom, they're going to run for a ten k. Yeah. Good for yeah. you. So um, I'm doing the exercise, you know, for that benefit, but also it helps you sleep better later on. Yeah. Yeah. Than, of course. Than, than just sitting in your hotel room reading. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right, you you don't sleep as well after that, so it's it's a it's a double thing. But if you do too much exercise, then I, I think you're you know you're going beyond the the hormetic zone, right? Mm-hmm. Or the, the therapeutic window, and mm-hmm. um, um, and I save that for when I'm back in my own time zone. So, um, like me, you're approaching that age where you've accumulated a lot of experience and wisdom, right? <laughs> And I've no doubt that your approach to life has changed since you were 30, 40, um, both in terms of some of the things you do, you know, with your eating and um, your sleeping, but also with your exercise. What are, the, what are the significant things that you do more of as you've got older and do less of? Hmm. Well, um, I would say uh, I do a lot more reading, right? Uh, with the quest of of getting to what I would have called the truth, because it's it's uh, pretty hard to get there. Mm-hmm. When I was younger, I was not that interested. I just I just went with the flow. Mm-hmm. What are people doing? What are guys saying? Right, and then I became sort of more skeptical and well, let me do the reading myself. Right, mm-hmm. is there is there really something to this hydrogen gas? Is it really important that I take k2 so i find uh, that's a change in me uh where i'm much more um, into finding out what is the truth what what how does it all work and why you know should we or should we not do certain things mm-hmm. yeah like for example the the other thing i was going to mention to you is not using antibacterial mouthwash yeah yeah i was going to bring that up actually so thank you Right. So a game with the microbiome, right? It's just fascinating what they're finding out. And uh, in this case, it's the relationship of mouthwash to blood pressure, right? And oxygenation of the muscles. So apparently there's, well, so far 17 species that live only on the back of your tongue and their nitrate reduces. They reduce the nitrate to nitrite. And that goes into your body and your body converts that to NO or nitric oxide, which is a vasodilator. Mm -hmm. And it is, you know, dilating your soft tissues and allowing oxygen to go places and uh, stuff like that. So, you know, mouthwash is like an antibiotic and Mm -hmm. it has its place like antibiotics. If Mm -hmm. you have an infection, if you're in your mouth, if you have some... If you've got yourself into the dysbiosis mm-hmm. of the oral microbiome, well, then you need the mouthwash like you would need antibiotics to kill the, the pathogens, the bad guys. Mm-hmm. 
but I'm just talking about on a regular day using it, let's say for fresh breath. Because mm. what the microbiome researchers are finding out is that in a healthy person, it's 700 species of bacteria in your mouth. I, I find that fascinating. Mm. A bit sort of, mm, I don't know, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> and how they, you know, some only live in your gums and some only live on your teeth and some only live on your tongue. <laughs> So uh, you don't want to disrupt them. But, you know, that whole thing about oral bacteria and oral health, um, I was absolutely amazed when I was reading about um, the health of Olympic athletes before the 2012 Olympics. They were doing mouth tests and infection and bacteria tests on all of the Olympic athletes. And over 50% of them had bacteria that was enough to, I think, they were given a they were given an I might be wrong on this, but there was something about what going into the Olympic Village. They had to have good oral health because of you know va- bacteria transmission, and the high number of these people. You think these Olympic athletes? They're right up there, aren't they? They're in the the stratosphere. You know the yes, sort of yeah, top zero yeah. point one percentile of um, you know talented ultra athletic. high performance humans. Yeah, well, <laughs> yes, you'd think so, and yet they were saying that fifty percent of them had this mouth bacteria that was unhealthy. Um, which which astounded me really, but then I guess you know they're eating um, energy bars, nutrition. Not all of them are as careful, perhaps as they should be, about their nutrition. So, um, yeah, quite fascinating. Yeah, I don't know about that uh, study, but um, it's interesting. I think it's I think it's in 1840 that the dentists were separated from the doctors, and the you know the dentist was viewed as like a technician. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, they they drill and extract and all that. But they're finding out now in the microbiome world that the connection between your oral health and your general health is 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 bidirectional. It's just two ways, like the the gut brain axis. Right. If if your if your mouth is not healthy, then unhealthy things will go into your gut. And if your gut is not healthy, it will go the other way. Mm -hmm. And um, dentists and doctors need to be communicating a bit more mm. right on the biology of the the, the two uh, the interrelationship right well that bidirectional relationship you talked about is is you know exists in all of those things that we've discussed today doesn't it you know the microbiome has a huge impact on sleep and sleep performance but sleep performance has a huge impact on the microbiome what you eat is highly influenced by the quality of your sleep and how well you're sleeping and how um how alert you are and the the strength of your cognitive function and if those things are subpar then you make poor choices and that often shows up in um the types of foods you're going to eat and then that has an impact on your microbiome and all of those things sleep and the microbiome and um, decision making have an impact on your overall health and other decisions you make and your mental health and those things have an impact on all those other things so back to your point earlier i think you said about everything being interconnected um and then it then it reminds me of that kids song you know about the um wrist bones connected to the elbow bone connected to the shoulder <laughs> right. bone you know and we laugh about that but it, you know it's not far from the truth oh yeah it's uh well, uh, there was one study uh, I was looking, um, and uh, it was it was done by the uh, medical community in um, Shanghai, yeah. and uh, they got this data from uh, a European consortium called the MyBioGen, 
And this was uh, 19,000 people from all different countries in Europe. And they were looking at bacteria that were associated with sleep. Mm -hmm. So I'll just read you what they said is that, okay, well, first of all, they use the word genera, right? So it's just, you know, in bacterial world, you have a genus, a species, and then a strain. Mm -hmm. So it's like the genus would be all British males. And then the species would be the Ward family. And then the strain would be Simon and then all his clones, mm-hmm. right? Because the bacteria yeah, yep. reproduce themselves. Yep. Right. So they're they're looking at the genera level. Like this is a huge level mm-hmm. of, of uh, bacterial um, science. So they found 42 bacterial genera that are involved with regulating sleep. Wow. Right? In, in other words, they had all these this sleep data mm-hmm. on people who had insomnia, they they didn't sleep well, or they slept too little, or they slept too much, all these different criteria. Mm-hmm. It was 42 types of uh, bacteria that influenced that. And then there was 39 bacterial genera that are altered by sleep. Yeah. Okay, so they could they could they had a timeline mm-hmm. and they could see the changes. And 13 of them are bidirectional. Right. In other words, these 13, they affect sleep and sleep affects them. Yeah. So it's like science showing you the importance of sleep on the microbiome and the importance of your microbiome on your sleep. I know. I know. Yeah. It's, it, you mentioned about you know, the doctors talking to the dentist and the dentist talking to the doctors and that communication thing. But all of these, for folks like you and me and Toby, we research this and we probably have conversations that most people think, oh, listen to those guys boring on about, you know, <laughs> the microbiome. Yeah. But actually, half of those people that were listening will probably be going, oh, you know, I wish I could do something to improve my sleep. Oh, I've got, I get terrible indigestion or I've got acid reflux. You know, I wish I could do something about it. The doctor's given me some pills to take. Um there's a lot of people out there that can help themselves. And I, I do, um, maybe I'm getting on my high horse now and st- almost in danger of starting a run, but I do think <laughs> that one of the problems with Western medicine, certainly in the UK, is that it's all focused on um, treating people when they're ill rather than f- helping them to be proactive and and have to avoid going to hospital. You know, that if we could do that, even for a small percentage of the population, it would take the pressure off. And I know, there'd be some people saying, well, not everybody has the privilege to be able to do that, but there's an awful lot of people who do have that uh, are in a position where they could do something about it, but still don't. Yeah. Well, uh, that's what I also find exciting is Mm -hmm. this, this new stuff um, that is coming out. You know, when I was growing up, there was the old argument, like your health, your chronic health, your long-term health. Is Mm -hmm. it from genetics? Is it from, um nature or is it from nurture like it is your lifestyle and you know pretty well now this general consensus is that one third of your health is your genetics you you can't you can't mm. forget your genetics right you you come with a genetic package mm-hmm. but with this new concept of epigenetics yeah right where you could there's dimmer switches mm you you can you can you know spool up some good genes and you can turn off some bad genes mm. and then lifestyle all these factors sleep diet uh attitude 
and uh, exercise, they are epigenetically changing. Mm. And because it's two thirds, it's kind of like, wow, it's empowering. You mean if I really, you know, work to find out what's good for me, mm. then I, I could, you know, reverse some genetic problem that I could have. So that reminds me that when we first chatted, you and I were comparing these sort of little furniture analogies that we have for how different things uh, oh, are the right, support okay, yes. structures. You remember that? And and what you've just said there reminds me of yours was four pillars and uh, a platform on it. Mine was three pillars and a, a you know a platform and a stool. So and you you had this neat little diagram that you'd uh, created in um, right right well it's, it's the not genetic the, but the genetics right. part was part of that wasn't it? So yeah. I'm I'm looking at this now. So if you just lift it up a bit more, Rick, and I'm going to read it out to the uh, listeners. So I've got it's basically a picture of a um, a kitchen chair. Um, so it's got four legs and a back, and it's got attitude. Just just lift it up a bit more, Rick, because this bottom one. Oh yeah, we've got we've got exercise for one leg, diet for another, sleep and attitude, and then at the top is we've got genes and the microbiome, and then that then you've got a little note there referring to what you've just said about one third genetic and two thirds lifestyle. So I love that about how you've got these four important pillars supporting the other stuff, which is the seat. And of course, if any of us go to sit on a stool, a three-legged stool or a chair where one of the legs is shorter than the others, everything that's on top of that is unbalanced. And exactly. um, Yeah. And so each of those, the sleep, the diet, the attitude and the exercise you have to attend to them equally. If you only focus on exercise and ignore diet and sleep, then the, the seat's going to be unbalanced and anything that goes on on top of that will likely fall off at some point. So they've each got to have your attention in equal measures across the week or the month. Yeah. It, it, again, about balance and uh, interrelationships. So yeah, with the chair, the analogy I would kind of build on that is that the shape of the chair. Okay. Right. And, and some of the basic functions of your chair, that's your genetics. You know, we got mm-hmm. the thin chairs and the tall chairs and the short chairs. And we, we have all these uh, um, different shapes and different functions that we got through the genetics from our father and mother. But what's exciting me is the microbiome mm. is the inside, the fibers, everything on the inside of the chair, because this chair is not a static thing. It's alive. If it's a triathlete, it goes swimming, bike riding, and then running, right? Mm. So so the, the whole internal structure of the chair it needs to maintain itself while yep. it's doing all these movements. Mm. And, and this is where the microbiome and the epigenetics uh, comes in to make sure that the, the, the internal structure of the mm-hmm. chair is functioning well and continues to function over time, mm. right? I haven't really heard that analogy before, but um, that's what I love about this knowledge of the microbiome is it's a huge impact on the function of this chair and that you can literally relate each mm. of the pillars, right, to the microbiome. Well, all of those great philosophers have models and theories that are attributed to them, Rick, and uh, maybe in years to come, we'll sit, we'll click onto Google and type in the Peter's chair and we'll see this beautifully sort of um, illustrated diagram with these chair and, and the microbiome and the genes and people were referring to Rick Peters, you know, the great 21st century Canadian philosopher. 
So uh, I was also going to share with you um, a study right from England, from Oxford University. Wow. So we all know in the sports world the importance of a positive attitude, mm-hmm. right? And and discipline and all of these, you know, yep. you, you you it's it's hard to to be a high performance human if you if you have a great deal of anxiety or depression or mm-hmm. uh, negativity, right? Yeah. So um, I came across this study and um, it was done University of Oxford. Let's see, I got it here. Okay. So the title of the study is the gut microbiome composition and diversity are related to human personality traits. Okay. So this is Professor Katarina Johnson in the psychology department of the Oxford University. And she got 655 adults in this study, um, 71% female, 29% male. Their average age was 42, and they came from 20 different countries. So this is pretty cool because basically all of the gut brain axis experiments and studies are done on animals. Right. So she found that um, the people that had... Uh, larger social networks, mm-hmm. they had a more diverse gut microbiome, right? And if they did international okay. travel, if they if they had a wide variety of, of, of foods that they ate, then they had more diversity. And diversity is always good. Mm-hmm. You, want, you know, if you equate the microbiome to a forest, yeah, and the good guys are the, the trees and the plants and the herbs, mm-hmm. and you also have weeds. Everybody needs to be there, but there's mm-hmm. a certain mm-hmm. balance and, and diversity is the key. Mm. So what she also showed, like scientifically, is that people with higher stress or anxiety or less time in nature had a lower microbiome diversity, mm. right? And she was working with um, the bacteria that are already associated with autism and mm-hmm. depression, right? Those mm-hmm. two ailments are have a relationship to um, certain bacteria. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I thought it was, I thought it was really um, cool that she's one of the first people to do this sort of human uh, scientific research. I've uh, I've seen studies like that before on microbiome diversity, and it um, it sort of highlights the recommendation from the the credible nutritionists and diet experts about you know making sure that you have a diversity of foodstuffs um from different parts of the world and different places within even within your own country in order to stimulate the the microbiome and 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 enable that diversity within there with the bacteria um so yeah and i again we talked about this right at the very beginning microbiome research is you know it's growing but it's still right at the very beginning of its journey isn't it compared to a lot of the other things and um it's gonna i think it's going to be a huge area of learning and scientific advancement um regarding health and performance over the next few years um, well it's, we're absolutely at the beginning it only it only started with the uh human microbiome project which mm. was 2008 2013 so this is this is brand new this is mm. a, a paradigm shift right from the the concept that bacteria are bad mm. and and uh, 
and viruses are worse mm-hmm. you know, to the, that, the concept that, wow, a lot of these bacteria are very good and in some cases essential mm. to human existence and health. And that uh, there's things like uh, viruses like phages that are keeping the bacteria in check, mm. right? Um, so it is is brand new, like in the mouth where there's 700 species apparently, only 54% even have names. <laughs> yeah. So there's well, 46% uh, they have no idea who they are or what they do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the Zoe project in the UK, but um, Tim Spector and the, and the team of scientists that they have there, they're doing um, a huge amount of research into the microbiome and they have some really good podcasts that talk about gut health and, um, you know, there's too many diff- of, of the good podcasts that I've listened to to name, but um, I'd recommend that you and anybody that's listening to this that hasn't um, checked out the Zoe podcast yet do so. Cause this, uh, firstly, Tim Spector and his team are very, very credible. I think he's one of the top 100 most cited scientists in the world. So he's got a lot of, you know, peer reviewed papers behind him and um, yeah, there's some good stuff there. Well, uh, like the, the knowledge of the, microbiome and your immune system right mm-hmm. which is important for the athlete because athletes mm-hmm. are known the more they exercise the more they're running themselves down yeah when you exercise you down regulate mm. the the whole rest and digest system mm-hmm. um, and then and then you you know you tax the body with the repair because yep. you have to sort of create a little damage to to have improvement mm. um, they tend to get sick so the microbiome they're finding out uh, is like the neighborhood watch. Yeah. When, when when the bacteria enters, they're the same size. They're the first to see it. And they have their own little bacteria sins or or peptides to try and kill it. And if they don't, they call your human immune system. Mm. And then they help regulate it, right? You have the innate one goes in, attacks, and then you have the adaptive that creates an antibody. Well, the microbiome is involved in turning off the first guys and mm. turning on the second guys but nobody knows how. They, they know this occurs but no one has a mechanism how oh, yeah. is it that these little mm. one-celled microorganisms are communicating with mm. the human body and well specifically the immune system well you know what rick having chatted with you now i've got a feeling that um when you and I get into our seventies and Toby's just behind us, we may still be doing that Barbados swim festival and um, doing swim competitions. Cause I can't see anything slowing you down. Well, um, I, I sure hope so. I'm sure going to try. I mean, you never know in life, right? No, you mm-hmm. don't, but, but you, you, if you do all, I, I feel like you're right. You never know what's coming in life, but if you do everything you can control to make That's sure the right things happen, then at least we can give ourselves the best chance. Right. That's right. Yeah. Cause there's, there's a lot of, uh, hits on our health from different aspects and, yeah. and it's not that easy. No. Um, if we're going to, you know, th- these pillars of health, as you just said, try mm-hmm. and address each and every one. Wow. Well, Rick, it's been absolutely fascinating. I'm so glad that Toby introduced us and thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Uh, I really appreciate your time and, um, hopefully we can, uh, loop back and do this again in the future when there's a bit more um, information on the microbiome to chat about. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. And uh, I've been listening to your podcast. Really, really great. Keep up the good work. 
and uh, hopefully your listeners will will gain something from it right that's always the hope we're just trying to share we're just trying to share good knowledge right that's right yeah yeah all right great stuff rick thanks very much and uh, look after yourself happy swimming all right take care thank you again to rick for being my guest on the show this week he's proved to all of us that with the right approach we can keep performing at a very competitive level into our 60s and beyond and if you're interested rest assured i'll be trying to find more guests who can help me dig into this subject about the microbiome in much more depth than we went into today now if you haven't already listened to them please check out my new bite-sized podcast episodes which are released every saturday they're around 10 minutes in length and i share some insights on some very specific topics you can find a link for those below and please make sure you check out the show notes for all the links of the topics that we discussed in this podcast today now, if you're able to share this episode with just one person who you think might benefit that would be truly awesome and if you have a couple more minutes then perhaps you could leave me a review on your chosen platform once you finish listening that's all for this week in seven days time i'll have another great guest and i hope you'll be able to join me but in the meantime please remember to check out those bite-sized podcasts on saturday mornings